All right, how's everybody doing out there? This is another episode of Talking with Bungie, the Death by Bungie podcast. I hope you are surviving the pandemic just fine, doing well with you and your family, staying healthy, but getting a little bit of outdoor exercise when the time calls for it as well. Spring gobbler season. Some states are going to allow that. Others are not. Keep an eye out for that. Make sure you're checking your local regulations to make sure that you can take part in your spring gobbler season if you see fit, if that was part of your plan, part of your strategy for your hunting season for this year. Make sure that you're following the laws and regulations and doing it properly. That's something we always have to keep an eye on because nothing is going to ruin your hunt, your trip outdoors, faster than getting in trouble for something. And certainly, getting sick isn't going to help either. So make sure that you're taking whatever precautions are recommended for you in your area. Those of you who are followers of Bungie, friends of Bungie, followed our adventures, our little exploits, so to speak, here in Pennsylvania and other places, will know that I have tried year after year with Bungie to go out there and take down a spring gobbler with a crossbow. I have killed a gobbler in the past with a shotgun, but not with a crossbow. And that's something that I need to accomplish. I try year in and year out. And I've had some great times. I killed a woodchuck during spring gobbler season with a crossbow. That was an accomplishment in and of itself. It's actually one of my favorite hunts, I think. But I have sought advice from friends at Bungie to increase my chances heading out into the spring gobbler woods this year in 2020. To do that, one of those folks that I've talked to is Dan Ranieri. He is a friend of Bungie. He is a moderator on our Death by Bungie Facebook group page. If you're not a member of that, you might want to check it out. It's a great way to share pictures, share questions, share answers, share information, and take part in the Death by Bungie lifestyle, so to speak. Dan has helped with that webpage. In addition to that, I've been happy to share. He has shared some of his artwork with me. He's quite an artist, drawn some great pictures of spring gobblers. And if that doesn't give me more motivation, I don't know what does. But he shared that with me as well. And I am especially thankful that he has joined me for this episode of Talking with Bungie to share some of his information, his suggestions, his strategies for going out there and chasing spring gobbler this year. Tell me about your experience, uh, turkey hunting in the woods. What, how long you been hunting, and what kind of uh, spring gobbler, turkey hunting, that sort of thing, have you been taking part in? Uh, you know, I've been I've been hunting since I was a kid. My dad has been bringing me out into the woods. Um, you know, as long as he's been able to. Um, I've been shooting a bow since I was four. Um, he's been bringing all of us kids. I have uh, four other siblings out. As, as early as he can get us out there. Um, I've kind of took to it more than any of my other siblings. Um, and I'm kind of getting my daughter into it now. Um, spring Turkey, we've always talked about it, but we really got into it over these last six years. Um, I took my first, uh, long beard in 2017 after four years of trying. So that was uh, really exciting. Um, I did do it with a shotgun versus a bow or a crossbow, but, uh, I kind of want to get that first one under my belt before I tried anything else. Um, but uh, it, it's it's definitely a lot of fun. It's it's a different experience than what you have with deer hunting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because there's a lot more interaction. You know, you call, they answer back. You know, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But in the mornings, you really get them going. It's 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 a really, it's a different experience. And if you've never done it, 
to hear them start responding back, it's, it's a really, really big rush. You know, like you had that buck come in that you now have mounted, you know, and you, you grunted them in that rush that you got, it's right. a similar rush to that, you know, you know, but you have them answering back and they start coming to you and you're like, okay, this is actually happening. And then Almost you see them come in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like a bunch of little raptors coming right to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, you're having a conversation with them talking back and forth. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I've got, I want to start with when you set up for this stuff now, are you, you scouting ahead of time? Like I'm right now, I'm in the midst of scouting state uh, game lands here in Pennsylvania, getting ready for the archery season, the crossbow season for deer. And of course I'm keeping an eye out for turkey sign while I'm doing that as well. Do you scout? Do you recommend scouting for spring gobbler? Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, I mean, it all depends on a person's personality, what kind of time they have, but you know, it's, it's kind of, you, you want to treat it like deer hunting to a point, And then at the same time, you don't, you know, with deer hunting, you can kind of get out and start your preparations a little bit earlier when it comes to, you know, like doing food plots and stuff like that. And you can kind of do the same thing for Turkey, but at the same time, you can't, when it comes to scouting, their sign is going to be a little bit different because deer have kind of set travel corridors and home ranges. Turkey will move around and they break off into different flocks at different times of the year and deer kind of do the same thing, but their home range is still generally the same. Turkey may not necessarily do that. They may move into a whole different home range after a certain amount of time and break off into smaller flocks. So you want to kind of pay attention as the season gets closer, at least in my experience, you know, that they may have one range where they've been staying in for the last couple of years. And then as a flock, it's really, really large as they have new poults that, other turkeys may break off and you have a flock drop off or you have a massive increase. So you want to scout, you know, sometimes really early, sometimes really late. You know, I just went out and actually scouted with my daughter today and I didn't see any birds in the area that I was in, but I did see some signs. So I know the birds are still there. The question is, is how many, you know? So once I start getting a little bit closer and closer to the opener of my season, I'll start getting them better idea. So time of day, closer to the season, you know, that'll give me a better idea of how many birds, where the birds are generally frequenting, what type of food source they're sticking to. So are you pretty confident when you're seeing evidence that there are birds in the area? Are you pretty confident that there's going to be some, because in the spring we're limited. I think you and Michigan are limited just like us. Obviously in the spring, you're only shooting the gobblers. Correct. Yeah. And is, is that, are you pretty confident when you see sign of birds in the area that there's going to be gobblers amongst those birds? It's not just going to be a flock of hens. Yes. Yeah. And I'm usually fairly confident, um, you know, just because just like with anything else, you can't have one without the other, right. you know, you're going to have to have a male to help breed the females and you're going to have to have females to help with the males. So, you know, you got to have one. It's just what the ratio is going to be. Generally, there are more females than there are males. It's just generally how it works out. Right. Um, and then you're going to have who's dominant, who's more dominant. Um, so you want to pay attention to where the dominant birds are kind of hanging out. Um, and then you got to look at, okay, Jake's versus Longbeards. You know, if you're going for your first bird, be okay with taking a Jake. You know, a lot of guys oh, yeah. want to have, Hey, you know, I want that long bird. I want that long bird. I was fortunate enough to be able to take a long bird for my first bird, but that was because 
this long beard that I shot, I have a feeling by the length of his spurs, he was a Jake the year before and he was still hanging out with his bully group of Jakes. He wasn't being chased off. What, when my dad had spotted these birds originally, there was two other long beards that were 500 yards away from them and they could not get close to where all the hens were because all the Jakes were keeping them away. Wow. So, okay. Yeah. That, that, and that happens a lot. So it's a matter of, okay, could I get closer to those birds? Were they at the field? No, it was no way that was going to happen. But because I had brought a decoy with me, set it up and got it positioned just the way I had, they saw that fan and those, all those birds came in thinking, I'm going to run him off. I don't want him anywhere near my hands. So that's just kind of how it worked out. Okay. And then last year, same, same situation happened. I saw some birds, asked her permission on the property that I was hunting. She gave me permission. I immediately ran out to where I saw those birds. I didn't know if they were Jake's hens or um, Tom's, but once I got an idea, okay, there were Jake's, I was still okay with shooting a Jake. I set up my decoy, set up my hen decoy. Once they realized there was a hen with a Tom, those three Jake's came in looking to run that Tom off again. They didn't oh. want him around. Gave me a perfect setup. I was able to take down a Jake. How many birds are you allowed there in Michigan? One bird during the spring season. Gotcha. Okay. That is it. Yep. Yeah. Once you get your tag, that is it. And that's generally how most states are. There are quite a few states in the southern area where there's a lot more birds compared to like with Pennsylvania or Ohio or with Michigan where there's not a large enough population yet to where they'll allow you to take more than one bird mm -hmm. during that season. Um, when they have their influx of, uh, uh, as my wife likes to call them, turklets, because it sounds more fun to say <laughs> than poults. Yeah, I love um, that. So when they have their influx of those during the spring or, you know, late spring, early summer, the fall season comes in, they allow you to take more than one bird during the fall season. When you talk about using the decoys and setting up, can you describe your setup for me? Are you using collapsibles? Are you using, using the hard decoys? How far away from them do you set them up? And, and when would you use them? When would you not? That sort of thing. Uh, so uh, my, my decoys are more of a, uh, more of a hard shell. They're not a super hard shell. They, they, if you do it right, you might be able to collapse them. With mine, I generally don't because for storage, I'm able to take my hen decoy, take the head off, put it inside my tom decoy, store the heads inside the hen decoy, and then I have a real fan that I have inside a sleeve so it gets, stays protected, um, and then they put them inside the carry bag. Uh, so when I'm out and about, if uh, there's a term called running and gunning. So if you're going to be running and gunning, that's when you're up and moving around from place to place to place. Um, that's going to be more for shotgunning or if you're using a crossbow, it's a good way to do it. If you're going to be moving from spot to spot because you're not getting a whole lot of action in one area, a collapsible decoy, like I think you have a, uh, oh geez, what is your decoy? You have a Montana decoy. It's the Ms. Perfect, I guess it is. That, yeah, that's right. Ms. The Ms. Perfect. <laughs> so with hers, with that decoy, that's a really, really awesome decoy to have for something like that. Because now you can move around from place to place, collapse it, tuck it in your pack. Really, really easy to move. My decoys, I can kind of do it with that pack that I have because I can throw them on there. You just need the right turkey vest along with you to make it a little bit easier so you can carry all your calls and stuff and not be too bulky. Now, if I'm carrying like a vertical bow, that's going to be a little bit harder for on the move, so that's where you're going to want to pop up. When it comes to setting them up, depending on the time of the year will determine 
what head I use for both the hen and the tom, because my decoys come with two different heads. Um, oh, okay. and then yeah, yeah, not all decoys will. It all depends on what brand you get. Um, you know what style they are, hard bodied or not, and everything like that. The company that I have are called Terry Light. Unfortunately, the company did go out of business, so they're really, really, really hard to find. <laughs> uh, so don't necessarily count on getting two heads, but if you can get them, great. I, I love these decoys. I've had great success with them. Uh, but so try to get them as close to you as possible without being too close. You know, if you're, if you're too close and you're out in the open or you're up against a tree, one of the drawbacks of that is if a bird comes in from your left or right and it's too close to you, now you don't have a shot. So I a, good, a good 10, 15 yards is a great way to set them up. And then depending on the time of the season, if they're right in the heart of their main breeding, setting them up in a breeding pose where a tom is right on top of a hen within a couple, anywhere between right on her to within a few inches, like he's breeding her, is a great setup. Because now that's going to make other toms or jakes super aggressive, want them to come in and attack that decoy and give you a good setup. Now you just have to wait for your moment to get your clean shot. Then later in the season, a lone hen can be a great setup because now you're waiting for that mid-afternoon lone strutter who's, okay, I haven't been able to breed anything yet. I struck out. Oh, hey, now there's a lone hen. That's a great way to go because now he's looking for a lone hen. Earlier in the season, you may have a setup where you can have a tom who's maybe five, six yards away from a hen. You can have her set in a semi-breeding pose where she's got her head in a breeding position, but she's not flat on the ground. So she's submissive but she's not quite there yet. And he's looking at her. You can have her kind of nonchalant set up and then that gets other birds interested and it can bring hens in. It can bring toms in. It can bring jakes in. It can bring just about any kind of bird in. And that's a good thing to have because if a hen comes in, that can also bring other toms and jakes in to your setup. Sure. So, yeah, but it's just like seeing does when you got does around, you're waiting for a buck. If you've got the smell of those does around, it can't hurt later on. It, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Especially some... if those does hang around. <laughs> right. Oh, exactly. Without spotting you, you know that's <laughs> right. Now, speaking of getting spotted, my big problem: I sit out in the open, the turkeys can see me, and I cannot sit still long enough. I rush around. It's a problem that I have fought, and that I have every year. I tell myself I'm going to do better, and every year I end up second guessing myself. But we'll get there. You know, I'm going to keep trying. Can right. you tell me from your experience, I, I know you've done some ground hunting. You also use blinds. Give me some feedback as to, uh, you know, are you going to use the decoys with a blind and, or do you prefer that only with the running gun setup or how, how, you know, when to use a blind, when to use the sitting on the ground method? Uh, you know, I'll, it all depends on again, time of year. Um, and how I feel on that particular day. A lot of times I'll start out with a blind in the morning, and if I'm not seeing a whole lot, I'll get up and I'll move and do a run-and-gun setup. Uh, I also bring a little bit of camo netting with me, especially that leafy netting stuff. It works out great because then I can set that in front of me and get in a good position to where it helps hide my movement a little bit, just enough to where I can see right over the top of it while I'm sitting on the ground. That helps conceal my movement, and I can still set the decoys up to where I can see them, the birds can see them, but they can't necessarily see my movement. 
I, I want to point out here too, for because we got listeners on this podcast, just like on the YouTube channel, probably all over the country. In Pennsylvania, just to be clear here, I want people to be checking their local laws and their state laws because in Pennsylvania, our blinds. Anytime you're using anything that is considered a blind that is blocking your movement like that, it has to cover you 360 degrees in a circle and from above. So you actually have to use a pop-up blind or other na- uh, man-made materials. Also, we're not allowed to use uh, natural materials in the spring gobbler woods. That's just the state law. But that's just one of those things. Your setup that you're describing is something I like to hear about because I can't wait to try that with deer. That's a pr- it is legal for us here for deer, and that's a great way to hunt from the ground. You know, something oh, yeah, exactly. very I've portable actually, and movable. So if you yeah. can, if you can do that for, you know, you want to be safe with all this stuff. I think that's the reason behind the, the reason that the Pennsylvania game commission has restricted that for spring gobbler use. But as long as you're safe with all this stuff and it's legal where you are, I think that is a great portable method to get out there and chase spring gobblers. Can you tell me now, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about the camo that you wear or that you choose. When I hunt in a blind, I wear my dark sweatshirts and all that kind of stuff. Of course, you want to get as dark as possible. What, uh, what are you looking for? Do you wear, do you go all out, wear a ghillie suit when you're out there hunting on your own out in the open or what, what are you wearing? Well, if I'm out running a gun, I try to wear a leafy suit, uh, not a full heavy ghillie suit, just because in the summertime or late spring, you know, it, it gets pretty warm. A nice lightweight, like bug style leafy suit works out pretty well. Um, plus with my vest, you know, that adds extra weight to me and thickness so I can get pretty warm. I usually take that and I'll pop that off and set it next to me with the seat underneath me or leave it loose on me so that way I can breathe pretty easy. If I'm inside a pop-up, yeah, I definitely block. I, I black myself out, you know, at least from the waist up. That way I'm as dark, said, dark as possible. You want to hide as much movement as you can. Again, where legal. That way they're not going to see your movement because turkeys have tremendous eyesight, even more so than deer, just because they can see color. So the more you can conceal yourself, the better off you are because you don't want them picking you off because the one thing turkeys are really, really great at is they come in in groups and you have that lead bird. They're notorious for the other birds are nonchalantly moving around and that lead bird gets nervous. As soon as that lead bird starts sounding the alarm and bolts, sometimes you have deer, they see one deer run off and they're like, what's he doing? And they think he's crazy and they just stand there like, okay, turkeys don't do that. Turkeys see that lead bird run off. They all go after it. They're like, okay, something's wrong, and they take off. They share a common brain, it sounds like. <laughs> they, they do. <laughs> and, and on the flip side with that, they do it with other animals. If a deer is in the area and a deer runs off, turkeys will do it too. They see a deer and they take off. So another aspect of that is scent control. A lot of people don't think about it, but scent control in your body during the turkey season can be an important aspect. Because if a deer comes in and it smells you, and then it takes off. The turkey's going to wonder, why is this deer freaking out and running off? And then it will do the same thing. I've actually had it happen to me several times. Then I started scent killing myself and I stopped having that issue. So That's interesting because here I am sitting in a blind drinking coffee and spring gobbler because you got to get up so early. But right. I, can, I can see what you're saying. If I'm discouraging some animals from coming into the area, it creates a less natural setting perhaps. And your spring gobbler that you're chasing might actually pick up on that same vibe. That's an interesting, an interesting tip. I appreciate that. 
Yeah, no problem. Tell no. me about your calls. That's another thing. You're giving me a lot of great tips here, and I appreciate it because you're going to help me. You know, I'm, I'm, every year I try to keep my optimism up about becoming successful at Spring Gobbler with a crossbow. So I want to know a little bit about turkey calls. I don't necessarily need to know every possible scenario, but what right. basics would you recommend that I or any other uh, Spring Gobbler crossbow hunter know? Well, the best thing I can recommend, especially for crossbow hunters or vertical bow hunters, is you want to be as hands-free as possible. So a diaphragm or mouth call is something you want to try and get as proficient as possible with. And the main reason for that is because if you have a bird coming in and you need to get its attention because it's kind of you need it to stop where you need it to stop, you want to be able to get that cluck or yelp off at just the right moment to maybe get it to stop. Yeah, if you are hunting alone, that is the only way to do it. I agree. It's it's so tempting to go out there and it's because you could you can make a box call sound so realistic and easy and perfect. And the same thing with the slates. The one gobbler that I ever called in and did kill, uh, my experience uh, with, was with a shotgun. That was a slate call and it worked fantastically. But you know, sitting in a blind, that might you might get away with that, but you're not going to get away with the extra movement. And they move so much. You want to have your hands free to take the shot too. That's the other thing. You you want to be able to be able to. You want to have the crossbow ready and ready to aim that thing when the moment arrives. I agree with you. We really ought to focus on uh, the diaphragm, the mouth call. Can you? What's the basic sound that we got to be able to make with that mouth call? So your basic sound is going to be your yelp. Um, and if you give me just a second here, I can kind of grab my. Uh, diaphragm call pop it in real quick and i can try and do one i'm not i'm not the best caller in the world so i apologize but no problem <laughs> there you go there you go now that's perfect i think you have just demonstrated exactly what's going to help somebody kill a turkey can you tell me how much of this calling you would be doing in the morning when you would choose to do it, that sort of thing? That's one of the harder things to answer. And the reason why is because sometimes you can get birds super fired up with a ton of calling. And other times you can shut them down with a ton of calling. Sometimes less is more. It all depends on the bird's personality and their mood for the day. I've had times where I've called a, a ton and I've had birds run the other direction because they're like, nope, 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 that's just too much. And then I've had other times where I took a buddy of mine out last year. He had only taken two smaller jakes in his entire turkey hunting career. And then I called in two really nice Thompson from him from 700 yards across the other from another person's property. And uh, <laughs> he ended up walking home with a 21 and a half pound uh, long beard. So oh, hey, that's fantastic. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it was more exciting for me to watch him shoot the bird than it was for me to shoot my bird, which is, you know, usually not the way you'd think it goes, but it was, it was, a, it was really, really fun. We got it all on film. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a really hard question to answer. You got to kind of play it by ear, you know, and sometimes if you're calling and you hear a bird and it's gobbling like crazy, but you, it's not getting any closer. One of the best things you can do is stop calling but don't move from your location. Give it 20 minutes to a half an hour because the thing that that can happen with that is they think that that hen has moved from a different location and they'll move to the location that you are in thinking, okay, she's moved off. I need to move to where she was at and maybe gobble a couple times to ah. see if she'll respond and come to where, I, maybe where, maybe she'll come back to where she was. Right. 
you know, so you, you got to play it by ear, um, you know, or try something different, try like a Kiki run or try some purrs. I, I, for the life of me, I cannot purr on a diaphragm call. So maybe having a slate call is a good way to go if you're going to be moving, because if you don't have any birds coming in, it's a little bit easier to purr on a slate call. That yeah. way you can get that purr off and get their attention that way. I so. agree. I agree. The purr for me, I can do it with a, with a mouth call. I can, I, I can just about pull it off when I'm watching the YouTube videos and I feel real confident, but boy, I'll tell you the minute I try that in the woods, it all falls apart. So, <laughs> you know, I'm giving myself away. I'm not going to do it. Now, one of, one of the things that I want to talk to you about too, when it comes to calling is strategy. Like we don't open here in until the end of April, beginning of May every year. And I think that's a little bit late in the season to be, you know, the birds are, they're kind of already in their mating sequence by that time. So I, you know, the calling doesn't have the rapid response that you might like that you might get if we'd started a couple of weeks earlier. But let me ask you, as your season progresses, does your calling change? Do your hunting tactics change? Oh, for sure. For sure. As the season, as the season goes on, um, locating calls become more key than just standard calling. You know, you want to get out for that morning hunt and you want to get a good locator call, a good owl hooter, or if you can do it naturally on your own is a great thing to have. You know, if you do a good owl hoot, just as the sun's starting to come up and get a good response so you can get a location where those birds are and get as close to them without busting them out as possible is a good thing to know because now you can say, okay, I know where this bird is. I can get within 150, 200 yards and set up on them and have a good idea where they're going to be. And then what kind of call you present to them once they get down is going to be a good indicator of what your success can be. Um, knowing a good fly down cackle right when you get set up is a good thing to have. That was one of the keys to our success last year with my buddy Jake was my fly down cackle. I presented a pretty decent fly down cackle by actually doing the cackle and then slapping the side of my pop-up blind No, to make it sound like a wing beat. Oh, sure. <laughs> it actually worked out great. I didn't have a baseball hat with me to wiggle that to make it sound like it. So I just started slapping the side of my, my pop-up blind and it worked. Huh. What time of day was now? How early in the morning was this? Um, like we're, we actually, we had heard a hen fly down. Um, okay. oh geez. That was, uh, about legal shooting started at six fifty one, And the first hen we heard fly down at five after seven. Okay. So um, the first 10, 15 minutes of daylight. Yeah. 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 I mean, basically as soon as your legal shooting starts is a good time to start doing the fly down cackle and you don't necessarily have to do just one. You can do one, give it 20 minutes and do another one because there are areas where some birds will stay in an hour or two after daylight and still stay in the, stay in their roost. It just depends on their mood. So isn't that something? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you now? when do you decide when to move, when to get out of that blind and move on, like you mentioned before, when to pack up and move to a new location. Obviously, if you're going to be, if you're hearing those gobbles and are way off and you need to set up closer to close the distance because it just doesn't, you know, that, that bird is never going to come to you all that distance. That's uh, that's an obvious scenario. But um, where, when do you make that decision to get on your feet and start moving around? You know, again, that's another really hard one to answer because I've, I've struggled with that for years. 
Um, and, and the reason why is because I have a tendency, you know, like you, I got to get up and I got to start moving around. I got, I fidget and I just, I get impatient with deer hunting. It's a little bit different because I know I got to be patient. I got to stay because deer have a different mindset than what turkeys are. Turkeys are a lot more active in how they move compared to what deer are. They're a lot more meandering and they're a lot more, okay, I can stay in this location for a little bit and then move where turkeys are constantly on the move. So I want to get up and I want to move to where the birds are. So for me, I've waited as long as three hours or as little as an hour and got up and moved. And sometimes it's paid off for me and sometimes it hasn't. Now I've only ever harvested two birds but I've gotten several shots. And of course the shots that I have gotten where I've missed were my fault. I didn't line my beat up right. And I shot 10 to 15 feet in front of the bird and watch, watch my wad and the shot hit the dirt and the birds all fly off and then look at me like I'm crazy. So, <laughs> and they do cause they land and they turn and they look at you and they're like, what was that for? And they all fly off again. Yeah, I, I, sometimes I wonder if they think it's just a, they're in the middle of a thunderstorm or something. And they don't know the difference. I don't know. I, it's just you, you'll just never be cease to be amazed with with what goes on out there. The first bird I ever shot at, I shot at him. He ran off to about fifty yards and then turned around and walked right back at me to to another thirty five yard shot. And I did the exact same thing. I put the bead in the same position, looked over the top of my sight at the bead versus through the sight of my bead, shot the exact same spot, and then he flew off. Oh. <laughs> Live and learn and move on. It's all we can do, right? Right. It's retool. Can you tell me now you'd mentioned that these birds are constantly on the move. There's no question about that. And it's not just their daily routine of moving around, but I also have noticed, and this is what concerns me as a crossbow hunter, that they are constantly on the move when they are in your presence, responding to a call or just feeding. Like they do not stop moving. They're twitching all the time. Their, their heads are bobbing, all that sort of thing. Talk to me about some advice from your perspective of for a guy that's trying to kill one with a crossbow, where are we aiming here? What uh, method of aiming do you prefer when I am, what I mean by that is, are we taking headshots or taking body shots? What do you prefer? For me, body shot all the way with any kind of archer equipment, vertical bow, crossbow, body shot, 100%. I agree. hundred percent. It, yeah. <laughs> it, it's, 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 it's too risky on something that's that diameter that is constantly bobbing around you know they're they're moving their head they're twitching it's it's like it's like trying to hit a hot dog on a stick (laughs) that's in the hand of a two-year-old in the middle of a windstorm (laughs) (laughs) yeah moving all exactly you know i mean it's if you've ever had a turkey be close enough to you even on the side of a road, like where I'm at in Midland, there's a particular road that we can drive down, especially this time of year, where they come out and there'll be like 50 of them. And they challenge the side of my car because they see the reflection and they try to fight it. Oh. And the other ones are looking at the bird that's trying to fight my car. And they're like, what are you doing? But their heads are constantly moving and they just don't stop. So I have fun with them. I'll roll down my window. I'll pop in a mouth call and I'll cluck and I'll and I'll yelp at them and they may stop their head for a split second, but then the head stops, you know, and then starts to move again. And in that second where you might squeeze that trigger off on your crossbow, that arrow starts to fly and then it move, you know, that arrow's moving, but then that head moves. And in that instant that that head moves, your shot's gone, you know, and it's, it's just too much of a risk. So a body shot is always the best placement. Um, 
you know, and then, okay, so now where are you going to aim on the body? So if they, if it's straight on and they're in full strut and you take your beard, you want to aim about a quarter inch above the beard. That's going to give you a straight on shot right through the vitals, about a quarter inch above the beard. Sometimes, you know, it can get a little bit, you know, a little bit iffy if you're not really focused on it. So if you're, if you're a little bit iffy and you're worried about damaging the beard, cause you want to protect that for your mount, maybe halfway between the beard and the top of the waddle, but quarter to a half inch right above the beard is a good placement if it's a straight on shot. Right. If they're in full strut and they're facing away from you, which is a good shot opportunity at that point, straight down the poop chute. <laughs> there you go. Yep. The tech is hard shot. <laughs> exactly. They they can't see anything. Their fans completely fanned out. They're blocked from all sides. So you got a clean shot. Now, if they're not in full strut and their feathers are perfectly flushed down, where their bars on their primary feathers meet right in the center of their back, that's a good straight on shot right there for their face and away. Right. You know, it's a good clean shot. So those are three of the most optimal places. Now, if they're perfectly broadside, you're going to want to aim dead center in their body, take where the bars are, go about a, maybe a quarter inch to a half inch up, and then maybe about a half inch forward. That's generally where I like to try to aim. If I'm going to take a body shot, gotcha. that should get you right in where your lungs and everything are. Right. Now, that comes into play, you know, what kind of broadhead? I know a lot of people are like, okay, do I go fixed blade? Do I go mechanical? Personally, I'm going to go mechanical because it's going to give you a little bit more leeway, um, you know, and then you're going to think about cutting diameter. I know you are a very big fan of your Rage Hyperdermic, your two blade. Great broadhead. Whoa, whoa. do they make other broadheads? Well, yes, they do. <laughs> I, I'm really not that much of a broadhead snob or anything like that. But I, oh, I know. I, 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 but it, it's definitely worth, you know, throwing that joke out there. I, of course. Anytime you get a chance to make a good joke about broadheads. People love the broadhead talk, and there is no more fitting <laughs> conversation to wrap up this this podcast with than talking about broadheads. So I am anxious to hear, Dan, what you have for us, um, all joking aside. Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't you say it deserved its own section, uh, its own uh, question mark, or its own selection on the uh, poll on the Death by Bungie page? Yeah, to, to <laughs> fill in podcast listeners who may not be as familiar with the Death by Bungie Facebook group page that we have going on here, and I should take this opportunity to thank you, Dan, for being such a great help with that. He is one of our moderators on that page, keeping the keeping the content clean and appropriate and keeping it focused where it needs to be on the outdoors and and crossbow hunting. One of the polls that was recently posted was broadhead selection for spring gobbler and all that sort of thing. And I, I had commented that I thought that my broadhead should probably have its own category, <laughs> but cause you know, cause it, it does, I I've just been, you know, and not to, not to give rage any more free advertising than they need, but the, uh, <laughs> the, the, every time I killed something with those broadheads, I just got more and more like just my mouth, hangs open even further so it's just they're, they're an amazing broadhead now that though is for deer my experience with white-tailed deer and sika deer but tell me about the what your thoughts are for gobblers because turkeys is going to be a different animal and maybe it deserves a different broadhead right well you know i mean it, a lot of it will boil down to a personal preference now for me i am going to be using the um nap spitfire triple x which is their two inch diameter three blade cut 
Um, they make this, the, the three-blade Spitfire in several different models. They even make one specifically called the Gobbler Getter. That particular Gobbler Getter actually has a blunted tip versus the standard uh, chisel tip. And the Ooh. reason why they have that is because if you like hit the leg or the spine, it's designed to easily break a bird's bones because of the hollowness of them. So right. it's designed specifically for that versus like a chisel tip, which is designed for more of a white tail. Right. And you I, don't I, need the penetration, especially with our crossbow hunters. You won't right. need the penetration that you're going to need with white tailed deer or bears or some other big game animal with a turkey. It's pretty easy to get that uh, way too much penetration, too quick a pass through. Whereas where this would slow it down a little bit, do a little more damage perhaps. Exactly. That's the other aspect of it is if you're going, if you do, if you don't hit any bone, it's designed to also help slow that broad head down to help it open up a little bit easier inside the animal and to, you know, do what it's supposed to do, get those blades open. Um, there's also the Grim Reaper that they have one that is actually a four blade model. And I believe it does have a two inch cut. It might be a one and three quarter inch. I don't particularly remember right off the top of my head, but there's, there's several different multiple, um, blades you know that are out there that are good options you know the rage is still a good option i know tons of hunters that actually do use the specifically the rage hyperdermic for turkey both out of a crossbow and out of a compound bow just because they are an excellent broadhead for multiple uses you know so it all depends on a personal preference um but i do definitely recommend some form of a mechanical just because you get a little bit more room for air with a little bit larger diameter cut so it's all personal preference, but I would still technically recommend in this particular instance, a mechanical broadhead. My take on the whole thing too, and I, I'm with you on that. I don't disagree with you one bit. The only thing I would add is that, and this has sort of been my approach here on this whole thing each year. And this is from a guy that has killed exactly zero turkeys with a crossbow, but accuracy is going to be so important. And I think an accurate shot with the broadhead of your choice that you feel comp confident with and comfortable with is going to be successful if you can get it where it needs to go. So I think exactly I, what we'll do is we'll, we'll leave it at that, Dan. I really do want to tell you how much I appreciate you joining me for this. I look forward to giving you all the positive results of the help that you've given me here as we go forward. And hopefully I can not let you down and get out there and kill a bird and be able to share that with you and with the friends of Bungie on our YouTube channel. But thank you very much for joining me on this podcast. Yeah, no problem. You know, thanks for letting me help out as a moderator on a page. I mean, it's it's not that hard as a lot of people might think it'd be. We have a great bunch of people that are on the page, and they actually make it easier for us because there is very little issues that we have to deal with. So, I mean, the people actually make it super easy for us to do our job. So We're pretty lucky. I got to tell you, we are pretty lucky. I'm, I'm so fortunate to have the group of people uh, who have supported Death by Bungie all this time, but the people that interact with Death by Bungie, whether it's on that Facebook page or some other avenue, it really has been good. And, and it shows me how much good people there are out there, especially in the hunting industry, so to speak, okay, in the hunting genre, and how many good people we have out there to, to share this stuff with, especially when we're limited in days like this to sharing stuff online and not in person so much because of the current events. So. <laughs> Thank you very much for sharing in this episode of Talking with Bungie, and until next time, all hail Bungie. <laughs>